from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer that explores the uncharted territory of the Yukon through the lens of folk horror. His writing plums the depths of human emotion and experience with a dark literary voice. He's joining me today to talk about his recent novel, The Broken Places, as well as his upcoming novel, A Dark Rue. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Blaine Daigle. Blaine, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this third day of August 2023. I came across your book by recommendation of Andrew Nyberg, and I knew that a recommendation from a writer as talented as Andrew would be a gold mine. And sure enough, it was. The story was dark, compelling, thrilling, heartbreaking, psychological, supernatural, and nicely tied up with a bittersweet ending. So as a gentleman at the poker table would say, well played, sir. (laughs) Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So the book is about a young man named Ryan that has suffered multiple tragic deaths within his family and decides to gather up his two best friends and drive out to a remote area for a hunting trip where they will stay in a cabin that was willed to him by his deceased uncle. And Ryan's friends Sean and Noah both have tragic past themselves, so the trip has the potential to be a very healing experience. However, Due to a dark family secret that stretches back generations in Ryan's family, strange things lead to absolute chaos. So, you are from and currently live in Louisiana, but the story takes place in the Yukon, which I would say is the polar opposite of the weather and topography of Louisiana. So, where did your frame of reference come from in writing the story in this setting? Well, I've always wanted to write a story in the snow. I don't know exactly what it is about the snowy conditions that, you know, speaks to me on that level. But I do know that one of the things that kind of came to mind is, you know, we live in the South, especially in Louisiana. We're currently in the part of the year that I refer to as the devil's armpit. Like <sighs> at this current moment, our heat index outside is 109. Mm-hmm. So 
we get snow maybe once every five, six years. And when it comes, there's this very just eerie other feeling to it, which I know for people that actually live in the snow is like no big deal. Like they probably look at that the same way we look at the heat. Mm -hmm. But I thought that it would be interesting to explore something else besides just what I'm used to. Also, I was looking for a place very isolated, very off the map to tell this kind of story. And the Yukon just screams off the map. You know, it's the least populated province in Canada. There's just long stretches of just nothing but wilderness or hills. Or when you get to the northern part by the Arctic Circle, just rocks. And I thought that was just the perfect kind of setting for a story like this. Yeah. Yeah, I live in Houston, so I understand your reference to the time period being the devil's armpit, but I actually refer to the Gulf of Mexico as the devil's armpit. That's a good way of saying it, yeah. Ooh, goddamn. That throws an awful lot of humidity on us. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So a little vicarious joy brought from reading a book <laughs> where, yeah. I mean, I understand there's a certain level that cold is just as bad as extreme heat, especially the winter storms. We've just started suffering every winter, it seems like. Yeah, it seems that way, right? <laughs> yeah. So the common thread that holds Ryan, Noah, and Sean together is loss. If they hadn't been bound together by loss, do you think that their loyalty to each other would have made sense? Or would it have come off to the reader as contrived? And could you expand on your inspiration to tie the men together in that way? Yeah, so my inspiration for tying them together through loss is, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the John Donne poem, No Man is an Island. It's where the famous, you know, for whom the bell tolls quote comes from. This idea that we're all kind of interconnected. Whatever hurts one person can hurt somebody else. Not to mention the fact that I think most people probably have their group of friends that knows things about them that others don't. And I think that this is that group of friends. So I think most people will go through traumatic experiences throughout their life in some way, shape, or form that they just don't talk about. They don't talk about at the water cooler at work, but their best friends know. And I think that these three guys, it's just, they're so close together that they know what the others have been through. They're aware of it. And I think that while, yeah, it does hopefully give a little bit more authenticity or depth to their friendship, I don't really think it's too much different than what a lot of us experience in our own friendships. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also the, <laughs> this is going to sound weird. I have never actually been hunting, but I can imagine the camaraderie and the bonding involved in hunting combined with this sense of loss that all three of them were processing at the time kind of had a synergistic effect on that, like one plus one equals three. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Well, so when it comes to those separate losses, Ryan lost family, Sean lost his hopes and dreams. What would you say exactly that Noah lost? To me, Noah lost everything. To me, Noah is someone who... You know, he was that positive, spunky, go-getter type. And when the accident happens with him, I think he sort of loses that spunkiness. He loses that positive outlook. 
And not to mention the idea of his faith, which is discussed a little bit in terms of like what he sees when he goes to the other side. I think that's a big thing he loses as well. So I think his is probably a little more multifaceted in terms of what he loses than the other two, possibly even deeper because his is on like an existential level as opposed to something that he can see and feel. Mm -hmm. In my mind, I was putting it into terms of like, I guess he lost his sense of security yeah, because of his brush with death. But yeah, I was forgetting about him not really seeing what he considered would be what is on the other side or the beginnings of crossing over into the other side. And mm. definitely his loss of a sense that everything happens for a reason, you know, yeah. insert cliche here. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's really easy to lose that whenever you're um, thrown into a situation that's tragic and senseless and, and didn't he also have, it's almost as if he lost a sense of mental stability because wasn't he basically having panic attacks? Yeah, the entire book, he's going through panic attacks. And I think in the book, it's mentioned that when they were growing up, you know, Sean had the really rough home life. Mm -hmm. Ryan had a better home life, but there was always an undercurrent of darkness that was kind of there. Mm -hmm. Noah was the rock. Yeah, Noah was the one that came from the good home. Noah was the one that was well-adjusted growing up. And in this case, the rock completely loses its stability. Mm -hmm. And that rock was created from stability. So how do you destroy the rock? You put it in an unstable situation. Like yeah. You show it that the ground the rock is seated upon, the foundation is not as stable as you thought it was. Right. Well... Sean lost his hopes and dreams of being a professional baseball player after suffering, I believe it was a knee injury. Is that correct? Yes. yes. Yeah. And to literally add insult to injury, if you'll pardon the uh, expression, his uh, injury severely hampers him from doing other physical things like hunting and gets very aggravated in cold weather. So were you also attempting to evoke the fear of the loss of independence in the reader with Sean's story? Because there are more than a few incidents where his friends have to assist him in different ways, you know, where his leg just kind of gives out on him or due to the cold weather locks up on him. Can you uh, expand on that? Yeah, that was absolutely the intention, especially with someone like Sean. You know, Sean is kind of a self-made man. You know, he comes from a family with a father that was not a good figure for him. And everything that he earned and had in his life is something he worked exceptionally hard for. And it was all him. He did it. Mm. You know, no one's held a red carpet out for him and told him, here, walk this. He went to the practices. He did everything. And to lose that sense of individuality, this idea or dependence, like I am now dependent on people when I've never been dependent on anybody my entire life, I thought was really just an interesting character trait to give him. Yeah, the loss of independence. I was talking to another writer today about the fear of death, and he's like, I don't fear death at all. I fear the possible lack of independence prior to death. You know, the elderly yeah. folks that end up, you got to have your ass wiped. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just, oh. Yeah, I would agree with that gentleman that the lack of independence is uh, much scarier than the uh, 
I mean, quite possibly the uh, relief of all responsibility. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think it was Kevin Smith, you know, Silent Bob. Mm-hmm. He, I just uh, watched Clerks the other day, actually. Oh, did you? Yeah. Yeah. He was on Rogan's podcast and he was talking about when he had a heart attack and they took him back for a heart cath. And I don't think he had like a near death experience as far as like actually being clinically dead, but I think he was kind of teetering on the verge there. And he was like, man, I have never felt such a sense of peace before to where I'm like, you know what? I don't have to get up early ever again. Nobody is depending on me. (laughs) Just like what a great way to look at it. Right. Yeah. But at the same time, they tried to uh, have him talk to his wife before he went in for the procedure and he wouldn't talk to her because he's like, if I do that, that means I'm saying yeah. my goodbyes. Yeah. So, come back to that. so she was pissed, but he lived. So <laughs> things good. But circling back to the book, the source of Noah's PTSD was terrifying. And I'm assuming it's a real life scenario, right? Something that's in the realm of possibility of happening. Yeah. It happens all the time. Okay. Yeah. Until reading the book, I hadn't really thought about the fact that something like that was an ever present danger for people that work in the uh, agricultural industry. And, you know, my mother grew up on a farm uh, in Canada, oddly enough. So I've been to, to, uh, uh, I'm going to try and avoid a spoiler, but I've been to the particular place that this happened and never thought of like what would happen if you accidentally fell into one of these said devices. And I've found from a lot of authors that they write about what they're the most afraid of. So do you have any direct or indirect experience with that scenario? No direct experience. I just, when I was thinking about what could have been Noah's trigger with this set kind of set him off. I remember in college, I read a couple articles because they had a few deaths in a couple months and they made the news. And I remember thinking to myself, like, what an awful, awful experience yeah. to go through. And I think it stuck with me because like farming deaths happen. That is a thing that people that work in that field have to deal with. But usually if it's death by like machinery or something like that, a lot of times it can go pretty quick. Mm. That's the exact opposite of quick. That is just, it's quick to start mm. and then it's just a slow descent. And there's not a damn thing you can do the entire time it's happening to you. And to me, that's just terrifying. Yeah, I imagine if you got hung up in a um, a combine or something like that, yeah. there would be some moments of terror as it's eating your arms up. But once your head goes in, you'd be done. It'd be Yeah, but I think this particular scenario in the book combines suffocation with claustrophobia. Mm-hmm. Just, oh, God. And it's just never ending. Like, it's like being waterboarded almost. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was the other thing is like, imagine you're, if you're stuck in a combine that's just eating your arm before it gets to your head. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts are, I obviously don't want to speak for anyone who's been caught in a combine, but like, yeah. your thoughts are probably about, oh my God, this hurts so bad. And then all of a sudden you're done. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this particular way to go, because it takes its time. Where could your mind go? Like what existential pathways could you begin thinking about as you're slowly sinking down into it? To me, like you almost go through the stages of grief the entire time as you're being pulled down, like almost Mm. to the point of accepting it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if the stages of grief can ultimately override your sense of self-preservation. 
Yeah, I mean, especially if there's nothing you can really do about it. Yeah. Or if you just irrationally cling to life, like regardless yeah. of what your situation is. Like, I will punch this combine until it lets me go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like to believe that if it's a death where it's not instantaneous, you're conscious and you're aware it's happening as it's happening, like, all right, I am in a, a lethal situation, I'm about to die, that your brain just releases every endogenous or, hallucinogen. Yeah. Like, just your endogenous DMT just gets shot throughout your body. The whole yeah. world turns into a kaleidoscope of patterns. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I can only hope. <laughs> Well, when the guys are on their way to the cabin, the isolation of the setting gives the story a very surreal feel. They travel well off the beaten path to an old village called Wolfsbone, then completely off the map down a long trail, which I think, wouldn't it take like an hour? Yeah, just off like of that. any roads to get to the Ryan family cabin. And it made me think of Bram Stoker's Dracula in the actual movie, where there was like that blue inferno that they go through. Mm -hmm. Was there any particular point in their journey where they breached the point of no return? You know, because I know there's an association with Ryan's backstory, but his two right. friends didn't have anything to do with it. Was there? Yeah, I think that Ryan, his whole life was a point of no return. I think that he was always going to go down that road. Mm. I think the only time that Ryan ever really got to say so in it was his actions, you know, near the end of the book. Hmm. Sean and Noah, I guess them agreeing to go because the moment that they agreed to go, Noah, for instance, never agreed with the trip in the first place. Noah didn't understand how this trip was going to help Ryan out at all, hmm. but he still agreed to go. So I guess by being a good friend, they essentially crossed that point of no return themselves. Maybe the empathy with them all having suffered loss was the linchpin that they were like, we're not going to let him suffer by himself. Yeah, so, it's almost like it's like you can't snap that. Yeah, like, you know, Ryan had no choice. And if Ryan's going, we're going. Right. Uh, the empathy and the love was the point of no return. And as they're there... What's really scary is there's a storm that comes in and it's off in the distance. It's like this slow creep and it not only snows them in, which they know is going to happen, but what's scary is that it stalls overhead, pinning them in place. And I remember here in Houston, tropical storm Allison, which is just a tropical storm. You know, it's not, not abnormal to cause some flooding, you know, just stay home. Don't put yourself in danger. But mm -hmm. this particular storm flooded Houston because it came over land and stalled. And then Sad, it went yeah. back out to the Gulf, recharged, and then came back over land. So it was yep. just, you know... So is there anything in particular like that that inspired you to turn something natural and chaotic like a snowstorm into something seemingly predatory? Well, there's actually two things. And the first one you kind of hit on, we talk about Tropical Storm Allison. Obviously, you know, we live on the Gulf Coast. Hurricanes are just a natural part of our lives. Mm -hmm. And I think anybody that's been through a really strong hurricane knows that there's just something different, something almost malevolent about it, mm -hmm. the way that it kind of just creeps up on you. So part of me was like, well, how can I take that fear of a hurricane and apply that to the Yukon? 
But another part of it was, you know, my father was the big person that got me into horror when I was a kid. And he is old school, 60s, 70s, 80s metalhead. Mm. And growing up, he would always play songs. And one of his favorite bands was Rainbow. It's Richie Blackmore, who was the guitarist for Deep Purple. And then Ronnie James Dio was the singer. And they had a song called Run With The Wolf. And there's a particular line in that song where it says, there's a hole in the sky. And I thought about how that kind of seems similar to how a hurricane has that eye, that calming. Mm -hmm. And the way that the song kind of portrayed it, I was thinking about it at the time. And I was like, it makes that storm feel alive. And the storm is really what keeps them from leaving. If it wasn't for the storm, they could have gotten that truck and left. Mm. But the storm just kind of sits there and won't let them go. So I think that A, trying to get the hurricane idea to come through in a snowy location like the Yukon, and B, also trying to create that same emotion. Because I was like seven years old when my dad was playing that song. And that song always kind of gave me the creeps. And I think I wanted to create that same kind of impact for the reader. Hmm. Now, are you a hunter? I'm actually not. I've grown up around in my entire life. I fish. I don't hunt and it's not so much like I'm not against hunting. Hmm. I would feel really, really bad the moment I killed the deer. <laughs> Bambi. But, yeah. <laughs> but uh, my biggest issue is that I've had friends that are like, well, why don't you just come on the trip with us? You don't have to do anything. And I'm like, dude, Y'all are leaving this house at 4 a.m. It is 25 degrees outside. You've lost your mind. Some, some of the people I know are like, I don't know if I want to be around you guys intoxicated with guns. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I want to be around you guys sober with guns. Yeah. <laughs> well, the reason I ask is because the reverence and gratitude that the young men have for the animals that they hunt is something that comes from indigenous peoples of all regions of the world. Mm -hmm. So is that something you learned from native spirituality? And if so, what's something else that you learned? Well, it actually came by as happenstance because the original idea behind their reverence for the animals that they're hunting, you know, like I said, I've grown up around hunters. Mm. And especially in Louisiana, and I know that there are a lot of hunters that I know who, if you really want to piss them off, kill an animal and don't use it. Mm. It's like an unspoken agreement where it's just like, no, 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 no. If you shoot this deer, its backstrap better be in your freezer or we got a problem. Mm. And then it just so happened that the more and more I delved into the indigenous side of, you know, spirituality and animalism, things like that, those two ideas really kind of synergized together really, really well, where it seemed as though the hunters that I personally know seem to have that same kind of respect for animals. Yeah, it was sport in the sense of, well, we're doing it, so we might as well enjoy what we're doing. But there's always that respect of, you know, when you shoot a deer, you drop the deer. You don't want it to suffer. You don't want it to go out there and just die a slow, miserable death. It's there to provide for you. It's there to provide for your family. Therefore, you treat that animal with respect. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, going off that with the indigenous beliefs and things of that sort, I think the one thing that I really enjoyed delving into was the interconnectivity of just everything, mm -hmm. the way that they view the world and the way that all these different things kind of weave together in such a way that it creates this almost symbiotic relationship between everything around you. Mm -hmm which I tried to kind of create that feeling when describing like the wilds in 
the broken places. I wanted it to feel like, you know, the actions of this tree dictate the falling of this snowflake. Mm. Yeah, it's very uh, pantheistic. It's God as the spirit of the universe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the story, the natives have a relationship with the spirit of the land that the cabin is built on. And there's like a default interpretation of the word spirit as being something benevolent, which this is not. <laughs> right. The natives' interaction with the spirit is based on the selfless preservation of their people. But right. the Rhine family's interaction with it is based on the worship of it and yes. the hunger for power. So was that all based in any way on society's own descent into materialism and greed? And can you expand on 100%, that? 100%. 100% it was, yeah. You know, I think that in a lot of ways, what we do in, in society, we take belief systems from past, you know, civilizations. We take belief systems from people that live down the road, and we torque and twist them into what we want them to be in some way, shape, or form. And I think a lot of times we sort of lose the why in the mm. process, you know, why are we even doing this in the first place? Because for the natives in this area, they didn't like this thing. Like this wasn't a choice that they made. They were stuck. And then you have these other people that kind of came in, took that thing. And instead of fearing it, they began to worship it. And this idea of, you know, materialism and greed, the idea that, okay, well, I'm going to worship the dollar. I'm going to worship what I've got. I think that played a really heavy role in me determining, you know, how I wanted that relationship between the natives and the spirit and the population of Wolf's Bone and the spirit to come across. Mm. Yeah, it really irritates me when um, people intertwine religion and or spirituality with the act of getting rich. Yeah. They make it fluffy and spiritual by using the word prosperity. Yeah. Like in Christianity, the prosperity gospel, like God wants you to be rich. Now I'm pretty sure God wants you to be able to feed your family, clothe them and keep a roof over their head. There's nothing yeah. wrong with being rich. You know, I'm not yeah. knocking rich people, but I don't think God's concerned with you driving a Rolls Royce. I think he has <laughs> significantly bigger things to be concerned with. Yeah. So. Like, yeah. <laughs> But no, yeah, you're 100% right. It's like you think about all the religions that are very popular throughout the entire world. And I don't believe any of them preach that you should be just filthy, stinking rich at the expense of everybody else. Mm -hmm. That makes no sense. Yeah. So it's funny how you want to twist and turn those ideas on their heads to be like, well, God or whoever wants me to be rich. Like, I'm pretty sure that big, thick book says the opposite. Yeah. It is easier to, I'm paraphrasing, but basically it's easier for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle or something like that than a rich yeah. man to inherit the kingdom of God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, I am going to refrain from asking any further questions at the peril of creating spoilers, but I will say it was an amazing book and I cannot recommend it enough. So listeners at home, check the description and get a copy now. But you have a new book entitled A Dark Rue coming in November of this year. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, um, a dark rue is a southern gothic story about uh, two siblings who witnessed something horrific when they were children. Mm-hmm. They've grown up now, and the death of their mother has brought them back to their ancestral home deep in the sugarcane farms of Terrebonne Parish in Louisiana, where something has been waiting patiently and malevolently for their return with the expectation that they're never going to leave again. Mm. Okay. You know, on the topic of Southern Gothic, can we just take a moment to say rest in peace, Cormac McCarthy? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. God, We all got to go sometime, but... (laughs) That just sucks. <laughs> it really does, man. It really does. Yeah. I actually very recently actually reread The Road. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's kind of funny to think that this is a man that basically said, screw this to every single grammatical rule in mm-hmm. the world. And it didn't matter because the prose that he wrote was so unnervingly beautiful and horrific in its scope that it was just, God, it just hit different. Mm-hmm. And he was so odd. He didn't hang out with other writers. He hung out with scientists. Yeah. And, you know, all I can do is try to suss out his thoughts from one uh, interview I saw with Oprah, of all people. (laughs) Isn't it like the one interview he ever gave or something like that? Well, I mean, I think he gave, like, print interviews, but, like, live in person on TV. I think it was Mm -hmm. uh, Oprah when The Road was in her book club. But he really didn't seem like he was too concerned with... Almost if people read his work, period. No, he didn't. Which I just can't imagine being a writer. You know, I understand like not being concerned with having this massive Stephen King audience, but like I feel yeah, but we all but we all want it. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, but, we can sit here and say we don't want it, but we do. <laughs> but he literally just like he was so content and happy with the words he was putting on paper. Like mm-hmm. that was his everything, man. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, like I just I feel like the writing, you know, and I'm not a writer, but I feel like the art of writing is not complete without at least a few conscious beings reading <laughs> your work. But yeah. who am I to say he was a uh, a master? But anyway, I digress. I heard Southern Gothic and my heart broke. But uh, that's understandable. <laughs> but uh, yeah, getting back to a dark rue coming in November of this year. You have The Broken Places, published this year in March, Dark Rue, coming up in November of this year. And from what I saw on your, I think it was your Instagram page, you were already in the revision stage of your third book. Third and fourth, actually. Third, Jesus God, man. All right. So <laughs> that, that even further uh, uh, adds to my question. What was the catalyst for this fevered trajectory of artistic creation leading directly to publication? Getting off my ass. <laughs> because, you know, I've wanted to do this since I was a kid, man. Like, and I've had these stories like swimming in my head for all these years. And I've always told myself, well, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. And, you know, something inevitably always came up where I would say, no, nah, that's a pipe dream, put it to the side. And then COVID hit. Uh-huh. And when COVID hit, we were on lockdown for all these months. And, you know, I'm a teacher and we ended up going back to class in August, but it wasn't the same. So we still had lots of time where I'm just sitting there going, man, you know what? Like, I might as well just do it now. Uh-huh. Like, why would I not? And then when I started writing The Broken Places, I realized, holy shit, I really like doing this. Yeah. And at that point, you know, it was like floodgates had opened. 
And I was like, every idea that I had was just starting to spill out, spill out, spill out, spill out. And I just started planning books, you know, left and right. And I think part of the problem is that I need to slow myself down because I'm starting to move a little too fast around liking. <laughs> yeah. I meant what I said when I said fevered. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. like God damn. Yeah. Uh, good stuff. So, you know, I wonder how long it's going to take, how many years before I stop hearing like what drove you from the inception stage to publication to stop hearing people say COVID because it's like yeah, know, right? there was plenty of COVID babies and there was plenty of COVID creative babies like yeah. books. I don't know how many times I've heard that. So, and also with the broken places, especially, you know, that's a story I've had swimming in my head since I was 12 years old. Mm. And then I had a incident where when I was 18, I was a senior in high school. That was 2010. Well, that was the year that Deepwater Horizon out in the Gulf of Mexico exploded. They had that bad oil spill that oh, went out to the Gulf. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you're from Houston, so you probably understand, like, if you're in the Southeast, you generally go to the beach for vacation. Mm-hmm. You go to Gulf Shores, you go to Biloxi or something of that sort, Florida. Mm-hmm. Well, we couldn't do that that summer. So we actually ended up going to the mountains in North Georgia that summer. Mm-hmm. for one last vacation before I went off to college. And while I was there, it was like 2 a.m. And I woke up and I went downstairs to get something to drink. And when I went downstairs, I happened to look over to those like these big tall windows that the cabin we were staying in had. And there was a deer just standing outside looking in at me. And it was just, it was just a deer. Did it have like, dead when, eyes? was it? <laughs> yeah. It was just a deer. Like, I wasn't doing anything, but it scared the crap out of me. I'm just frozen. Like, this is the scariest event of my entire life. Uh-huh. And, you know, in the time after that, that is how that story just kind of, you know, swirled in my head for years. Mm-hmm. And then when COVID came, it just created the opportunity to put it on paper. Mm-hmm. And while I was at it, you know, the floodgate was already open. It was like, well, I have this Southern ghost story I've wanted to tell for a long time. Let's do that. Mm. Well, I have this Lovecraftian story. Let's tell that. And that's just kind of how the ball started rolling with it. Mm. Gotcha. Like the uh, Black Plague giving birth to the Renaissance. Yeah. yeah. Which is a little redundant because I think Renaissance means rebirth. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> giving birth to the rebirth. Sorry, yeah. listeners at home. I apologize. Well, being from Louisiana, have you thought about writing a story? I'm sure this is what you love to hear, people giving you ideas for books. Uh, (laughs) Have you thought about writing a story centered around Mardi Gras? Because the masks and the chaos of the parade and revelry uh, in the old setting of the French Quarter with all the voodoo lore, I think that would be prime fodder for a story. I have worked on a short story that is set on Bourbon Street during Mardi Gras. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that kind of holds me back is, you know, I think there's an idea of what Louisiana is like based on like how Disney has portrayed it. And mm-hmm. I, I know it's more than just Disney, but like, I think most people, when I talk to them, they think of like princess and the frog. Oh, that's Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Like, no, no, no. Or they think like that's voodoo. It's like, no, it's not. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there. So I think, Unfortunately, in a lot of ways, some of the stories that I would tell from that perspective might be a little bit left of center in terms of their authenticity. Mm. 
And with the dark fruit, that was a big part of why I wrote it. I wrote it like, this is really what Louisiana is like. Like, there's no frills. There is a voodoo element there, but it is based on actual voodoo, not what mm. Disney has told you voodoo is. Mm. Um, it's just kind of like, you know, I get frustrated when I see like, if I had to see one more movie where they're like in the swamps of New Orleans, like where in the <laughs> hell are you finding swamps? It's a metropolitan <laughs> city. Like, this is stupid. Uh. Like, but at the same time, I think if you dig into the darker corners mm-hmm. of that area, like you said, like Mardi Gras, for instance, yeah, Mardi Gras is an absolute party. Like there, it's just absolutely crazy. But there's probably a few dive bars, some shady stuff is going on while all the revelry is happening outside. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's probably some pretty good fodder for some really good, authentically Louisianan stories. Mm-hmm. And I would very much love to write something in that vein one day when that time probably inevitably comes. Hmm. Yeah. So what I mentioned is more of a caricature. I wouldn't say caricature. I would just say that like when you start getting into the details of it all, Mm -hmm. that's when it gets murky. Like when people talk about like, Oh, voodoo dolls, like not a part of voodoo. And you know, I tell people a lot of times there's a movie that actually really almost got it right. That movie came out in the two thousands called the skeleton key. Yes. Oh, that movie, great that, movie. That Fuck. movie did a really, really good job at presenting what New Orleans and the surrounding areas, as well as voodoo and hoodoo and the differences between the two, are actually like. Was it Papa Justify? Yeah. Or, I know it was Justify, but was it Papa Justify? I can't well, remember. probably Papa's a very common term that's used. Like in voodoo, there's the figure of Papa Legba, who's like the uh, yes. ferryman to the other side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it may be a little hokey, but I love the American Horror Stories depiction of Papa Legba. Oh, it's a great aesthetic. It's oh, a great God. aesthetic. God damn. It may not be accurate at all, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what do you credit with the discovery of your passion for the written word? You know, when I was a kid, uh, I started reading very, very young. I remember I was in like third grade or so and uh, I walked into my school library and they had the Animorphs books. Mm-hmm. There's like 52 of them. They had like crazy covers where people were like turning into animals. And it was like complete and total body horror for a 12-year-old kid. Mm. And uh, I devoured those and I don't know what it was. I just always loved reading. Mm-hmm. It was peaceful. It was absorbing. I enjoyed being able to really just turn myself off from the world around me and just kind of dive into this story. And I think that from that time, I, I mean, I remember I would sit in my room and I would trace like the outlines of the books that I'd recently gotten. And I would draw my own little like horrible little covers and just tell myself like, yeah, I'm going to write this book one day. Like, mm. It's hard for me to actually remember a time that I didn't want to do this, that I didn't enjoy reading or creating in some way. Okay. Well, how would you describe your literary voice? Uh, hard to say. I feel like a lot of times readers are kind of the final determiner on that. I know that if you read something of mine, which you can probably expect is it's going to be very, very emotional. I enjoy that kind of things in my stories. I'm a big Mike Flanagan fan. Mm-hmm. So I like to tie my stories together with a lot of emotion. I put a lot of emphasis on atmosphere and setting. And sometimes I have to like call myself down with that. Like, hey, chill a little bit on this. They get it. 
But uh, that's the basic gist of what you're going to get. I like writing characters with past, you know, traumas and tragedies. I feel like that makes them compelling. Mm. And, you know, I feel like a lot of how I write also does stem from where I come from. Because the way I like to joke about it is I think The Broken Places is essentially a Louisiana ghost story set in the Yukon. With snow. <laughs> with snow, yeah. That's all it really is. It's just, it's just hiding in plain sight. So I think that there's like an inherent dirtiness to a lot of the stories that I do write mm -hmm. because that's the stories that I've been ingrained around my entire life. But in the end, I think that readers will probably have the final say so in terms of describing, you know, what I'm actually putting out there. And, you know, I just realized I wanted to ask you about the third and fourth works you have coming up. They're actually a little bit reversed in terms of when they were really started. So after I finished The Dark Rue, it was submitted in December, got signed in January. Is that also with Wicked House? Yes. Okay. And I started working on the third one, which for a while was titled Leviathan. Mm -hmm. It now has a different title because I found out there's like 8,000 books out there with the name Leviathan. <laughs> so it's now titled A Dark and Endless Leviathan. Sea. Yeah. So uh, it's very much a psychological, cosmic, kind of Lovecraftian style story. Mm -hmm. But I got about, you know, up to about 50,000 words in it. And then I was like, well, shit, this is why like H.P. Lovecraft only wrote short stories, because in a novel, you have to make all this shit make sense. <laughs> and I was like, I'm struggling. With that. I couldn't do it. So I put that aside. And then I wrote my fourth one, which is a combination of gothic and folk called ashes of august manor i finished that one and then as i was finishing that one i had like an epiphany where i was like oh that's how i'm going to end the other book so i went straight back into that one and i only had like fifteen thousand words left and i just ended it so it seems like i wrote them all really back to back but it was an eight-month process well as you just alluded to, you describe your work as a blend of gothic and folk, which I would say is a perfect description. What draws you to those two genres, and who are some influences from each of those genres? Uh, so starting with folk, I guess. Folk, to me, has always been super intriguing. First things first, like earlier I said Southern Gothic. Mm -hmm. Let's be like Southern Gothic horror is basically folk horror that occurs in the South. So you know, it was always the stories that I grew up with. You know, I'm in Louisiana. We hear about the Rougarou, things like that. But also, I think that folk horror taps into like this idea of the other in a way that a lot of other genres can't. This idea that, you know, we have all these rules that we that we live our lives by, that society, you know, dictates that we follow to keep society functioning. And the idea that there are places out there in which those rules do not apply in which the beliefs that we have do not apply and that perhaps there is no good or bad or perhaps that bad is viewed as good or mm. maybe it just doesn't give a crap at all mm. is to me very unnerving. Like I feel like in our general lives, you know, everything that we do, we can kind of sit back and go, well, if someone does something bad, they will go to prison or they will, you know, whatever. But there are places that that does not happen because that's not how it works. And I think folk horror really ties into a lot of that. Like something like the Wicker Man, I mean, they burned a dude alive for a harvest. So, I mean, like that, like that is a terrifying notion to me. 
And with Folklore, without a doubt, my biggest influence there is Adam Neville, writer of The Ritual, Last mm. Days. I adore his stuff. Shout um, out to Adam Neville. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He's phenomenal. So he's really kind of like my go-to in terms of like that folky aspect of it. And then with Gothic, it's partly the aesthetic, but it's also, I like how understated a lot of it is. Whereas folklore can be like very in your face. Gothic can be a little understated. Maybe it's less focused on the blood and guts as much as it is the atmosphere and the setting. It's like the scariness doesn't come from what's hiding behind the corner. The fear comes from that long walk you're taking to get to the corner. And I think Gothic really achieves that fantastically. Things like Haunting of Hill House, you know, that's the big one. The stories of M.R. James, you know, recently, well, not recently, I I watched it when it came out, but Mike Flanagan made The Haunting of Hill House TV show, and I was just absolutely blown the frick away the entire time I'm watching that. And I think that those are two, they're different in a lot of ways, but I find there's a really good sweet spot where they do tend to merge mm-hmm. where you can get that really surrealistic kind of feel. And I think that that's kind of where I like to live. Mm. Faulkner. I've read a little bit of Faulkner, mostly in college. I liked what I read, mm-hmm. but I didn't like the way that it was pushed because when I read Faulkner, I had all these ideas in my head. And I mean, college professors love to tell you that they know for absolute certain what this writer who's been dead 50 years was trying to say about a particular topic. It just, that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but no, Faulkner is unique. And Faulkner has these passages and paragraphs that are just jaw-droppingly gorgeous. And I think that in a lot of ways, the Gothic really ties into that. Yeah, I can't remember which novel it was, but this woman is, she's found her way into the home of some bootleggers, and they're just like, you know, inbred, creepy, mountain people types, and the way he wrote the scene of them just throughout the night coming to her door and trying to get a look at her as she slept... Like, I can't describe it. It was so eerie. It's like having um, nails, like, raked across your arm the whole time. Yeah, like, there's just, it. yeah. And nothing really happened. Yeah. Like, that, there was that, no, there was no action. It was just so fucking creepy. And that's what, <laughs> I think that's what Gothic does really, really well. It's able to basically give you that feeling without actually doing anything. Yeah. Crazy, crazy. Well, what was the first novel you read and what feelings did the writing, not the story, evoke in you? What did you feel when you realized, holy shit, you can actually combine words in an artistic way and make the most vivid, captivating story just on paper? The first novel I ever read in terms of like an adult novel was Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park. I read it when I was in either fourth or fifth grade. I don't know for certain which one it was. And a lot of that went clean over my head. Mm -hmm. But I remember being enthralled with how tense the story was and the way that Crichton wrote tension. Mm -hmm. Where 
kind of like we talked about earlier, it wasn't so much the dinosaur hiding in the bushes. It was the way the bushes moved in a way that they shouldn't be moving. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading that and just being like at the edge of my seat that entire time when I was reading. And then I would read other stuff that would show me the monster, show it to me quick, and I'd be like, that's it's not doing anything for me. And then I kind of went from Crichton. I read a lot of Peter Benchley. You know, I read Jaws. I read The Beast. I read White Shark. And a lot of them kind of did the same thing. I like how tension is created. And then I moved into King and Kuntz and started getting, you know, more out there in terms of what I was reading. Mm -hmm. But yeah, definitely Jurassic Park. I've reread Jurassic Park at least 10 times. I'm actually looking at it on my bookshelf right now. Like it's, it will always have that really special place in my heart. And you said you were how old when you read it? I was in fourth or fifth grade, one of the two. I want to say fourth because I think I was in the hallway of my fourth grade class reading it. So you were about the same age I was when I read my first novel. Did you read Jurassic Park because you weren't allowed to see the movie? No, actually, my first memory of watching a movie is being four years old and watching the T-Rex eat the guy off the toilet uh-huh. and thinking that was the funniest thing I'd ever seen in my entire life. Like, I don't know how sick. my fuck no. I know, <laughs> I don't know how my parents didn't like sign me up for therapy. But uh, no, my parents let me watch that. I mean, they obviously would check things out prior to me viewing them. Uh But like I said, my dad was my big gateway into horror. I remember being, you know, about nine years old and we sat down and we watched Toby Hooper's Salem's Lot. Yeah. And that was like our big kind of bonding thing when I was a kid. And he would always go out, he'd buy me Stephen King books or he'd go to like, you know, back when we used to have like VHS rental stores, like he would go to showbiz video and he'd bring me home like, Hey, I saw this. It's Christine. I know it's based off a Stephen King book. I thought you might like it. So yeah, they were very open. I read Jurassic Park because I loved the movie so much. Mm. Yeah. I don't think my dad really cared. It was more my mom, but I, uh, I wanted to see that movie, The Client by John Grisham. <laughs> and uh, that may have been, I don't know. How old are you? I'm 31. Oh, okay. Yeah. Before your time. I know of it though. You know of it. Yeah. I wanted to see it, I guess, because I don't know. I thought the kid in it was cool. I think the kid in it was about my age, but uh, wasn't allowed to see it because I believe it was rated R. And so I saw the novel. I was like, oh, they wrote a book about the uh, <laughs> the movie, Ooh, yeah. know, not realizing the way it actually worked. And uh, so that was my in because my mom was like, oh, yeah, well, you would like to read a large book completely unprompted? Yes, you, I'll buy Absolutely. this for you. So that's what set me online. I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> With no idea how much more vivid it all gets in the book. Yeah. So by the time I was old enough to actually see the movie, I was like, this is shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, so when it comes to genre, how wide or narrow is the spectrum of your reading with regard to genre? A writer I've had on the show a few times, Lashane Arnett, she goes from what you might tongue-in-cheek call chiclet all the way to splatterpunk. Wow. <laughs> um, I'm very limited right now in the time that I actually have to read. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a five-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old at home. I'm a full-time teacher. I'm now adding writing to this whole cycle. So I kind of have to pick and choose what I do read with a little bit of dexterity about, all right, well, what do I actually have time for? 
horror is my main. Like, there's no doubt about that. That's really where I kind of state my claim. I like fun adventure novels. Like, I like reading like James Rollins novels. Mm-hmm. I love Michael Crichton. Occasionally, I do like to read more literary stuff. I'm a huge Hemingway fan. Mm. One of my favorite books, if not my favorite book of all time, is The Beach by Alex Garland, which is very much like a psychological thriller with a literary tint with a little splash of horror thrown in there. And then something like, even something like Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishigura. So I think I kind of gravitate toward dark fiction usually in that Mm. realm. But, you know... I would enjoy stretching out a little bit if I can, but right now, maybe when I'm 50 and my kids are out of the house, I'll just have like this like 8,000 book like backlog of stuff that I can read from other genres. Well, speaking of being an English teacher, I can see writing novels naturally coinciding with being an English teacher. So is there anything else you do that you feel makes you a better writer or makes you naturally inclined to be a writer, period? I think it's just read. Reading is the main thing. But I think consuming all forms of creative entertainment in some way, shape, or form also helps. You know, I tell people this a lot that when they ask, hey, what's your favorite, you know, scary book or scary movie? Or like, you know, what's the scariest thing you ever read or seen? To me, the best horror story ever told is a video game. It was Silent Hill 2. And I think all these different mediums, being able to consume and enjoy them And not just enjoy them, but to analyze them as well, because I don't think it's possible to really write on a surface level where it's like, well, I understand the aesthetic and I understand how a story is supposed to progress. I think if that's how you approach writing, I think you're going to be missing something. So I think being able to, you know, consume and then analyze, decipher, break it down, understand why this works, understand why this didn't. And, you know, why did you have that feeling you got? Why did you get it? What did this creative person do that made you feel that way? If it's a book, was it this passage? Was the way that it was worded? If it's a video game, was it the camera angle? If it's a movie, was it the music in the background like swelling at a certain point? Okay, what created that? And then how can I take that and put it into a in a literary sense? Mm -hmm. And do you feel like I guess the last part of that question? something that makes you naturally inclined to be a writer, period? Mm, I don't know. You know, my family is not full of writers, right? Like, I'm the only one. My father is a painter, so I guess there is some creativity there. But I don't know. There's nothing I can really put my finger on that I could say, you for certain are what allows me to do this. I've always wondered if there were potential writers that never became writers because whatever would naturally incline them to be a writer was just kind of what occupied their time. Like, uh, like maybe being an English teacher, maybe somebody loved teaching English, but never thought about being a writer because they never tried it or thought that they had the capability or like a painter, for instance. Well, that was almost me. For a long time, that was me. I was just sitting teaching English, not even, you know, telling myself over and over again that, no, you can't do this. This is not for you. You know, it's a pipe dream. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I can definitely see that because, shoot, I was almost one of those statistics. Yeah. Maybe think, maybe there's some potential writers that never become writers because they think you have to be something like an English teacher. 
Yeah, like, it's very, yeah. Oh, it's like something you learn. It's not something that you have in you. You've got to like. You got to foster it. Yeah, if you want to be a lawyer, you got to go to law school. It's like no, not necessarily. <laughs> Most of the writers I uh, interview are not formally trained. No, we talked about Cormac McCarthy earlier, and this dude literally violated every single grammatical rule known to man. He didn't give a flying shit, mm-hmm. but he knew how to tell a damn good story. Have you ever read any Hubert Selby Jr.? I have not. What did he, I think instead of listeners at home, I am placing my hands on the keyboard of my computer to make sure I'm getting this right. I think he replaced apostrophes with forward slashes. For some reason, I think he said it just naturally flowed better. If you look at his books, there are forward slashes used as punctuation. <laughs> yeah, see, I don't want to call the man off the line, but I feel like that's a spike to somebody. Like somebody you think so? Some, like an old English graded, teacher? One of your students one day. <laughs> someone graded his paper with a merciless red pen. And he's like, <laughs> you know what? Forward slash. So the response to that should have been, who hurt you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, is there anything you avoid because you feel it stifles your creativity besides forward slashes? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's a lesson I've had to learn as a new writer. It's basically writing 101, which is try your absolute best not to read your reviews. Because look, some people are going to love what you write. Other people are not going to like it. You know, people are different. They have different tastes. And you have to remember that you're writing for the people that legitimately do like what you put out. And if you focus so much on those negative reviews and you try to appease those people, you have a, you run the real risk of losing what made you so likable to these other people. And I know that part of what hurt me this year, I mean, I know obviously it's two books written in a year, but for a while I didn't write at all. For about two months around the release of The Broken Places, when I was stupid and looking at reviews, I'm just like, it was almost like writer's block because I was I had these negative voices in the back of my head. And I know that I'm the person that will overlook the 10 positive reviews and hyper-focus on that one negative one. Mm-hmm. And it was crippling. And finally, one day I was just like, you know, I got about 40,000 words into book number four. And I just, I hit a wall because I was like, maybe I'm not that good at this. Maybe this was a fluke. I don't know. And one day I made the decision. I'm like, I'm just going to take the Goodreads author dashboard off of my toolbar on my computer. (laughs) I'm just going to take it off. Mm -hmm. And in a week and a half, I wrote 30,000 words and finished the book. So it's like, to me, that was crippling, you know, and it's not that I don't, want to look at them. Obviously, I'm putting this out to the world. I obviously care about what people think about it. And I want people to enjoy it. But at the same time, you have to accept the fact it's not going to be for everyone. Mm-hmm. And it's not doing you as a creative person any good to sit there and, you know, hyper focus and vent and steam on people who obviously are not going to be your target audience. They're not going to be the ones who are going to buy books two, three, four, and five. Thank them for the review and just move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I often wonder how people that give reviews saying that a horror book is too violent. Yeah, of course. How they end up reading the book in the first place. Cause, well, yeah. right now, they have that book Playground by Aaron Bogard that's going around on BookTok. Mm-hmm. And it's getting crucified by these people that are like, 
well, I didn't know what I was getting into. Like, did you see the cover? Yeah. Yeah. Like, what do you mean you didn't know what you were getting into? Like, look at it. Uh huh. I got a massive spike in downloads because of his episode, because of that TikTok uh, video. Same. Yeah. So I mean, I'm not a splatterpunk person. So uh-huh. I will probably never read that book. It's just not my cup of tea. Yeah. But I can look at that cover and be like, this is probably not for me. <laughs> it's amazing how that happens. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like people are looking for something to bitch about. Yeah, almost. Right. <laughs> it's just not quite there, but almost. So when you have the control, what is your writing atmosphere? Well, it'll depend. I usually always like to have some kind of atmospheric kind of music playing on a very low volume as I'm going. For instance, like when I wrote The Broken Places, I kind of had like a snowy ambiance kind of going in the background. Hmm. I like to do it mostly at night if I can, just because the kids can be in bed. I can make sure that it's quiet. But I like to have zero distractions. The TV cannot be on. I can't have any other tabs open on the computer. If I have a tab open, it better be freaking research. Hmm. Social media is non-existent. I want to put myself 100% into the book that I'm writing. And I find that, you know, listening to a little bit of ambiance as I do it really helps me do so. And the ambiance is going to change depending on the story. So for the broken places, it was a snowy kind of snowstorm kind of backdrop to it. A dark rue was kind of like the bayou at night. My Lovecraftian was like a haunted lighthouse ambiance. And it just depends. But the quiet and the ability to really hone all my focus in on the story is really what I try to create. So is writing at night purely opportunism to take advantage of the quiet or do you feel like you're more creative at night? It's hard to say. I think I read a report that says that human beings are actually more creative when they're tired. Really? I think I read this back when I was in college. But I don't know. I mean, I've had days where like my wife took the kids. Like my wife is incredible. She will take the kids to grandma's house for three, four hours just so I can have some writing time. Mm. And she'll do that at like 11 a.m. And I'll write from 11 a.m. to 3 a.m. And I'll just hammer out 4,000 words. Nice. So it depends. I find that writing at night on certain scenes definitely helps. Like if I'm writing a particularly harrowing scene, I do want that nighttime kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the reason I ask... Uh... It was funny. I interviewed Ronald Kelly and, you know, he's, I think in his sixties, so he's retired Mm -hmm. and he thought once he retired, he'd be getting up early, writing, going to bed early. He's like, no, like my creativity peaks at night. So even though he's retired, he's writing at two, three o'clock in the morning. Dude, there may be something to that. The best essays I wrote in college were at 2 a.m. when I was like, oh shit, this is due tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah. So it's like an old ingrained habit. Yeah. Well, I don't know if there's a clear answer to this question because of what you explained about your progression with your previous books. I wanted to know how much of the plot progression of a book is already in your head before you even start writing a book and how do you proceed with what you have? But it seems like there's some latency involved with some of them that you pick back up later when you have a stroke of inspiration. Yeah, so most of the books that I've written, I've had a pretty good idea of the end. I kind of know where it's going to end. With the book that I had abandoned earlier and then revisited because the ending didn't make sense, 
I knew what the end was. It just didn't make any freaking sense. Mm. So the hard part was making sure it made sense. With the book that I wrote this year, Ashes of August Manor, I tried to do that one without any sort of an outline. I tried to completely pants it. And it's currently with my beta readers right now. So we'll see how successful that little experiment was. But generally, I have like a basic idea of where the story is going. Now, that basic idea is more than likely going to go off the rails about 40% in. And then the struggle is finding some way to end it in a satisfying way when I considered the ending that I had already had planned. I know the ending of The Broken Places was not the one I originally had. Mm. The ending of Dark Rue, as a matter of fact, is not the one that I originally had. So yeah, there's a little bit already there, but I try to let the story speak whenever it perks up with some words to say. Mm. Does your wife read your work? She does, but she only reads it after it's been published. Her reasoning for it is, if I read this now, I'm only going to get the bare bones of what it is. She wants to see me when it's at its absolute best. She's unbelievably supportive. She has really jumped into this whole thing with me mm-hmm. because, you know, it's, it's kind of scary when you're first starting out and you're willing to put your work out there for other people to read, especially work that's just personal. You know, a lot of the stuff that I write does come from pretty personal places. And you're kind of putting it on a big screen for the world to see it. You know, it's kind of unnerving. Mm -hmm. And she has been with me every step of the way with it. She enjoys it. She enjoys hearing about how many words I've got. I write on Scrivener, which has that little progress bar at the top. And she loves to see what that little progress bar looks like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she has truly grown to love this whole little process. Well, what role do you want writing to have in your life? I would like for this to be the thing that I do. Mm. You know, I would like to be able to say that I'm a writer and nothing else. It's not that I don't enjoy teaching. It's just the fact that teaching has always been like, okay, well, that's my job that I do. And writing has been, this is what I've always known that I wanted to do. Now, I don't know how, you know, feasible that is Mm. given the changing of the world around us, as well as the idea of, you know, creatives, the advent of AI off in the distance. But it's definitely something that I do want. I want this for a long time. And I want stuff that my kids can read one day. I want stuff that my kids can say, my dad created this. Well, speaking of that, tell me about your work as a teacher. And are your students old enough to read your work? They are. I teach high school English. So their 10th grade. Now, whether or not they're old enough is going to completely depend on how their parents feel about it. Well, if I could read The Client when I was eight years old, I think. (laughs) I read it when I was 12. Yeah. So, But I mean, I don't push it on them because Uh, the last thing I want is for a parent to say, like, if they don't agree with the content for me to be pushing it on them. Um, Whenever they ask me, I say, ask your parents first, have them look at it. What is is 10th grade? How how old is... 15, 16. 15, yeah. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. You can handle that. <laughs> but I, I have had a few students that have read it. Uh-huh. They've enjoyed it. I don't know if they just wanted to hear their teacher say the F word a bunch of times. But <laughs> but uh, no, they've the ones who have read it have seemed to enjoy it. I was just happy that they read a book. Mm-hmm. I did have one kid, when I announced that the book was getting published, he commented on Facebook. like, I never read a book in my entire life, but I'll read yours. Mm-hmm. 
I almost, and I wanted to comment like, listen, man, I tried to teach you how to read a few years ago. I might just give this one a pass. <laughs> this is not a 30 second TikTok video. You've got to, no, like, it is not. You've got to put some time into this. <laughs> yeah. Well, what has the experience been like with Wicked House Publishing? Because they blow my mind. I mean, I've had Andrew Nyberg, uh, MJ Mars, you, and I have, I shall not say who it is, but another uh, of their published authors, they just seem to be kicking ass as far as their eye for talent. They have been outstanding. You know, the entire process, I was this close to self-publishing it. The broken places. And it wasn't that it was getting rejected. I wasn't even getting responses. Mm. The book was just sitting in portals for months at a time and nothing was happening. And the few people that actually got back to me were basically like, well, what's your social media presence like? And I'm like, what about the book? And they're like, oh, what's your social media? Like, it was such a frustrating experience. And I just randomly stumbled across Wicked House on a Facebook ad, and that was when they had first started out. I think at that point, the only book they had signed was Joe Scipione's Mr. Nightmare. Mm -hmm. And I want to say I submitted it, and MJ's book, The Suffering, was accepted while I was submitting it. I think Andrew got accepted like right after mine. Mm -hmm. But they're phenomenal. The guy that runs the whole thing, Patrick Ruman, he's very involved with all the authors. And not to use the cliche that every single corporation on the entire planet uses, but he makes it feel honestly like a family. Mm -hmm. Like I've got multiple, you know, Facebook Messenger apps open with the different authors just shooting the shit, commenting on our books, just talking, trying to help each other out as best we can. Uh, but they are absolutely incredible. They do a good job getting the book out. Their cover designer, Christian Bentelin, I think is how you say his last name. He's yes. absolutely yeah. incredible. Mm -hmm. And it's just been an absolute pleasure to work with everyone involved there. You know, they treat you well and they're very honest with you. I think one of the things that I like is that Patrick will routinely tell us like, hey, like there's only so much I can do. Like I'm a small time press. You need to make sure that you're creating the career that you want for yourself as well. For me, it's like, yeah, like, Take control of it. You want to control your future, take control of it. Like, mm -hmm. And I think he allows us to foster that. And I have absolutely no regrets whatsoever in going with them. Well, what is the life of Blaine Daigle like outside of writing? Pretty darn quiet. Uh, you know, I live in a very small town in southeast Louisiana. We have one four-way stop. Mm -hmm. It's very quiet. You know, I have my family. I enjoy reading. I enjoy writing. I like baseball. I coach baseball. So that takes up a lot of my time during the school year. But a lot of it, honestly, is just, you know, spending time with my family. I'm at that point where, you know, maybe one day I want to travel a little bit more than I do now. But right now I'm just enjoying being with the kids, being with my wife. My wife and I had this dream of one day traveling to all 32 major league baseball ballparks across the country. That's like our little travel goal. But for right now, I'm very content just living the nice, quiet little life that I'm living. Nice. Well, Blaine, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? 
Uh, yeah, so as we mentioned earlier, A Dark Rue is scheduled to come out on November 10th of this year. The ebook version is currently up for pre-order. The paperback, there is no pre-order for that, but it will drop along with the ebook version officially on November 10th from Wicked House. Also, you can add me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Blaine Dagle Author for updates as to new books, new signings, as well as potential events that could be occurring in the future. All right. Listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Blaine, thank you again for joining me. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast newsletter by clicking the link in the description. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday, where I will be joined by a legendary underground filmmaker. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Let's see.